Well, good morning. And uh, it is a joy to be here with you. I'm going to ask that you would take your copy of God's Word and meet me in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. We're going to continue in our summer series on miracles as we're looking at the person and the work of Jesus. And we're looking at the lens of the work of Christ through, uh, looking rather at the work of Christ through the lens of the miracles. And we're looking at not only what that meant in the ancient Near East in the day of Jesus, but how that then applies to us. Well, this morning, Luke 17, we're going to begin in verse 11. We're going to be looking at a very uh, often taught passage here in Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, as Jesus cleanses 10 lepers. When you get to Luke 17, verse 11, give me an oh yeah. If you need a minute, say hold up, brother. Fantastic. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between, that's important, between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Watch this. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. And before considering it, we should pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of your word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen. Amen. On August 5th, In 2010, the globe became enraptured in an event that would span longer than two months as 33 Chilean miners were trapped underground in the belly of the earth. And as the rocks and the rubbles caved in upon them, every method of rescue was thwarted and cut off. 33 men, some older men, elderly men, Some new fathers, some who had spouses who needed them at home, trapped 2,300 feet below ground. The country, over the span of those couple of months, you can throw that picture up there, the country, over the span of those couple of months, planned the funerals of 33 men. And they planned the funerals of these 33 men because they did not expect any of them to rise from the grave. In fact, they went 17 days without hearing from these men as this mine caved in. In 17 days, these men were able to find a drill to push it to the earth. And that note said simply, we're all alive, we're still here. 
This is the bill from a movie called The 33, which chronicles the journey of these 33 men. And as these 33 men were in the ground for two months, uh, I remember watching the live coverage of them creating this capsule on the shuttle and shooting them to the surface and getting to the surface and breathing air for the first time in months, hugging loved ones for the first time in months, covered in sweat and in grime, these men emerged and they were, in a word, grateful. Because they had been given a death sentence and yet they came out of it alive, grateful. When we arrive at Luke 17, we find 10 individuals who've been given a death sentence, exiled to the outer portions of their society and left there to die. And this is a story about gratitude. But before we get to the part on gratitude, it's important for us to also see this as an historical event about faith. It's about faith, which begs the question, first point this morning, what is faith? When we often ask the question, what is faith? Uh, growing up, I would ask my mom or my grandparents or, or, or my Sunday school teacher, they would say, I would ask, what is faith? And they would say, well, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. To which I would reply, what does that mean? Right? We can get so churchy sometimes that we, we, we spout these answers that are right and yet we don't know what they mean. And for, the, and for most of my life, I began to ask myself the question, what, does that, what is the evidence of things hoped for, the, uh, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? And sometimes I, I'm not that smart, so sometimes I've got to reframe and recast uh, certain ideas and concepts in order for me to make them make sense. And, and so as I'm looking at faith, I, I think I've arrived at m- maybe a more helpful way to explain what that passage in Hebrews is talking about. Faith is the spiritual organ by which the invisible is made visible. Faith acts like spiritual eyeballs that allow us to see that which is invisible. This is one of the reasons why Christianity is such an outlandish idea outside of the new covenant It's why we sing, Lord, haste the day until my faith be made what? Sight. We walk by faith and not by what? Sight. But we actually do walk by sight. It's the faith that gives us the eyes to see. What is faith? Faith is a spiritual organ, but also faith is an earthly enterprise. Friends, did you know that we won't need faith when we get to heaven? Faith will not exist in heaven. And it won't exist because we will have spiritual bodies to actually be able to see the spiritual realities of God in Christ and the Holy Spirit himself. Faith is a very earthly endeavor. Our eyes will provide all the proof that we need. So until then, we walk by faith and not by sight. So so faith is the earthly spiritual organ by which the invisible God is made visible. And I believe it's faith that propels these men to cry out to God. There is no earthly remedy for their condition. There is no salve that can do away with this condition of leprosy. 
It is, in fact, a death sentence. It is, in fact, a condition that would leave you exiled. And these men are desperate. And I wonder, in all of the travel in between Samaria and Galilee, that they had heard about this man named Jesus, and they had heard about all of the things that he had been able to accomplish and done, and that they had heard about all the ways that he had healed. And from a distance, they saw this man, and they cried out to him. And what do they say? Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Their their faith allows them for a moment to live in a reality that is not yet. Their faith allows them to imagine a scenario where this individual heals them from something that they currently have. Their faith allows them to hope. Because ultimately, faith is belief and trust, but it involves a measure of hope. Faith believes the apparently invisible to be true. It, faith allows us to hope. Now, what is hope? Let me throw this definition up here. Uh, hope, uh, to put simply, again, I've got to reframe some of these theological concepts to make them graspable and simple. Hope, quite simply, is borrowing the joy of tomorrow today. Hope is borrowing the joy of tomorrow today. There would be many times that we'd be in the middle of workouts in college, and I'm literally, I've already thrown up on myself twice. Um, I'm covered and drenched in sweat. My body's near, uh, about to lock out, and I'm tired. I'm looking at the man next to me, and he's falling over. He's about tired. And in my mind, I had to go to a place in my mind to be able to survive. And that place was sitting on the couch in my house in the air conditioning with a bowl of cereal watching anime. That was the place that I had to go. Because my present situation told me that this is going to be forever. And yet hope told me that there's a day coming when this will be temporary. Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? Hope then causes us to take a future reality and live in that reality in the present. To put it in the words of the great philosopher and author C.S. Lewis, he says it this way concerning hope. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. It is faith that allows us to make sense of this crazy world, a world that makes no sense, a world that is dark, a world that is going to hell in a handbasket. And yet, as believers, we are those standing clear-eyed with spiritual sight to see the hand of God in all of it. And faith causes us to hope for a day when we'll sit at the table of God with Jesus, faith. Is a spiritual organ by which the invisible is made visible. And when we encounter these lepers, we must keep in mind that Jesus has faith in his sights. Jesus often uses signs and miracles as a medium to get people to faith. Because the point is never to have one's hope in a sign or a miracle. The point is to have one's faith in the giver and the doer of the signs and the miracles. But Jesus will also require something of these men. Uh, Would you allow me to walk around the text? And maybe you might hop into the text with me and walk around for a bit. It's interesting in verse 11, we find that Luke writes that Jesus is on his way to 
Jerusalem, and he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Jesus is likely traveling from north to south on his way to Jerusalem. And Galilee and Samaria border one another, and in between, there's a partition. A partition that is invisible in many ways because it is a demilitarized zone. It's a no man's land. It's one of the reasons why many commentators believe that these lepers are in between Galilee and Samaria because this leprosy colony was likely comprised of Samaritans and Galileans or Jews. It was a multi-ethnic death camp. So when you had someone with a disease that made them unclean or an infectious disease or a situation that you just wanted to get rid of them. In this case, it's the camp of leprosy. You took them to the outskirts of the region and you left them there to fend for themselves. It's one of the reasons why I think they stood at a distance because leprosy is a condition that was contagious. And they stood at a distance and they shouted. And I just wonder what that would have been like because leprosy in the sense of how we understand it is a neurological disease that creates these boils on your skin, yes, but leprosy also deadens your nerves to the point where you actually don't feel. You see, there's a great gift with pain because with pain comes awareness. But when you're not actually able to feel, you could lose entire limbs and not know it. So from a distance, they shout, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. I like that they appeal to Jesus, his proper name, the name that his mama gave him, Master, a name that would have signified their understanding of his position in the Jewish society, and then have mercy on me, which I don't know that they're actually knowing what they're saying, but they're invoking this primary character of God found in Jesus. So in this one sentence, we see this aspect of Christ that illuminates the different ways that he is. He is Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary, born of a virgin. He is master, he is Lord, and he's merciful. Jesus is God. But Jesus doesn't respond to them how you would think he would. Because he doesn't walk up close to them. He doesn't lay his hands on him. He doesn't spit in the ground and make dirt. What does he do? He speaks from a distance. They shout from a distance. Jesus speaks from a distance. Again, this is the power and the sovereignty of Christ Jesus, that a word can go forth from his mouth and it will accomplish its due task. And what does he say? Go and show yourself to the priest. Now, Jesus, what are you doing? You, you don't say, son of Adam, I see you. You don't say, man, I see you. You don't say, woman, I... You say, go and show yourself to the priest? I, I think because faith is an ultimate goal for Jesus, there's an aspect of faith we would do well to pay attention to. Second point this morning, it is the idea that faith is active. Faith is active. In order for faith to be real, it must be active. Uh, This week, I was thinking about all the ways that we show other people that the love we have for them is real, right? 
uh, growing up and, and for many of my kinsmen according to the flesh, like you know it's real, ladies, when you allow him to see you with your shower cap on. Right? Like you, you let him see, see you with your shower cap on, you know it's real. Uh, you, you know it's real, men, like you know it's real when you let her drive your truck. You know what I mean? Like that's my baby. <laughs> I don't know if women still wear rollers, but there was a day in time when you would allow someone to see you with rollers in your hair when you knew it was real. That's when you knew the relationship was actually deep. And for me, because everything is around, surrounds food with me, like, I, like you know it's real when I give you that last bite of the hamburger, right? The best part, like I done ate all around the hamburger and I done created the juiciest, most tastiest morsel. And like you looking at it with your eyes on it and you like, hey, can I have it? Like, you know, it's real when I give it to you. And that's like one person in the world. That's Courtney Cook. (laughs) And and, and even then she's batting 300. Uh, You know that it's real when our actions line up with our confession. How do you know that faith is real? You know that faith is real when one is obedient. Let me say it this way. I'm going to say this twice, and this is important. Faith that does not actively seek to obey the words of Jesus is not faith. I'm going to say it once more. Faith that does not actively seek to obey the words of Jesus is not faith. Faith is a whole person enterprise. Faith is not merely intellectual assent, nor is it only an emotional response to external stimuli. Faith requires our whole person. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. You cannot claim that knowledge alone is sufficient for faith. And and this is important because we live in a culture, in a region, in a city that prizes education and we're right to do so. But like any other good thing, we can take that good thing, make it an ultimate thing, and we can allow an intellectual assent to be a substitute for faith and still not obey the words of Christ in our life. Faith requires that you know intellectually, emotionally, and affectionately. It's why Jesus' response here is baffling. It makes no sense. Faith should say, hey, Jesus, I believe that you can heal me. Come heal me. And if Jesus is acting how I want Jesus to act, Jesus trots on over. He lays his hands on me. He prays, poof, bing, bang, bada, boom. All my leprosy is gone. I'm skipping back to where I came from to re-enter society. But Jesus doesn't operate on our timeline or our expectations. Because like a good rabbi, he's trying to teach. He says, go and show yourself to the priest. Now, Now, he says this because in the Old Testament, if one had leprosy and then was cured of that leprosy, in order to be brought back into the society, into the uh, fellowship and the assembly, they had to go show themselves to the priests. And the priests had to look you over, check you out, and make sure that your condition was healed. But he tells these men to go and see a priest while they still have their condition. And yet something miraculous happens. All 10 of these dudes obey. Watch this. And as they went, so as they're walking, 
to the priest. They are cleansed. They're healed. And then verse 15, one of them, one of them turns back. Now, we're going to get to this guy here in just a second, but, but I am blown away. That, that The Old Testament prescribes that you go see a priest after you get healed. But Jesus says, go see a priest before you get healed. And as you're actively participating in your own miracle, Jesus heals you. It's the difference between a, hey, y'all, you need to clean yourself up to come into the church house, or you need to clean yourself up to call on Jesus. And Jesus is like, baby, with all the magic erasers and Lysol and common in the world, you couldn't clean yourself up enough. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the work, but I need you to be an active participant because I'm trying to build your faith. Jesus wants to engender faith in these lepers by giving them an opportunity to trust him and to exemplify that trust by obedience. Now, now, now here's the thing. Uh, I believe the Christian life is a bit like blocking and tackling, right? Blocking and tackling, blocking and tackling, blocking and tackling. Like when it comes to faith, the gospel is not something we grow out of. It's something we grow deeper into. And just as we have, we know more about the moon than we do about our own oceans. That's the gospel, right? It's so deep and unfathomable and indefatigable and the depths of which cannot be fully plummeted that we have to grow deeper. And faith is this thing that we always grow deeper into, right? And Jesus knows that faith, like any other spiritual organ or muscle, has to be worked out. So he tells these men, go show yourself to these priests. Friends, faith is not sedentary. It's not static. It is dynamic, and it must always be seeking to obey the words of Jesus, even when they don't make sense to you. These lepers may not have been able to see what Jesus is doing, but he's working and they're obeying. And there are times when I've heard people say, uh, well, Pastor Jason, like, I I know I need to be spending some time with Jesus at some point throughout the day. And man, I know I just need to be praying. And I, I I know I need to be sharing my faith. And they're riddled with so much guilt and shame because that's what the church is really good at, is heaping guilt and shame on people for not being and acting how they should be acting, right? And, and they say to me, you know, I want to do all these things, but my heart's just not in the right place. And like, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't do it. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Or they reason in their heads that like my heart should be in what I'm doing. And so I'm not going to do the things I know that are good because my heart's not in it, right? Faith cares about your heart, yes. But faith also means that we must be obedient. Here's what I mean. I look at those people and I tell them, So you're telling me that even though your heart's not in it, that when you open God's word and you begin to read and study and when you pray and even though your heart's not in it and you're praying and you're spending time with Jesus and you're spending time with the Lord and when you're telling someone about your own journey and sharing your faith, even if your heart's not in it, that that you're telling me there's no benefit in that. You're spending time with Jesus. You're praying and talking to God and you're being faithful and obedient to share the hope of the Lord Jesus with other people and you're telling me There's no benefit, and I'm telling you, sometimes your heart has to catch up to your head. And other times, your head has to catch up to your heart. Obedience cares about heart. Yes, it does. That's true, and that's right, and that's good. But sometimes we have to be obedient and then catch up to our own affections. 
I, I, I never forget the walking that aisle when I was eight years old, utterly terrified, knowing it was the right thing to do. And did I know all of the things? Was my heart all the way in the right place? No. And yet the Lord uses that to push us, all of us, along the right path. And friends, if we wait until we have the right and proper motivation to do something for God, we'll never be doing anything for God at all. Faith is active. And so Jesus engenders faith in them by giving them an opportunity to obey. And when we obey the words of Jesus, third point this morning, we find that faith closes the distance. Faith closes the distance. Now, now early in this passage, Jesus says that he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, now there are certain places in the Bible that when you hear the name of that place, your ears should perk up. One of those is Samaria. We, 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 we know how Jews tend to think, tended rather to think about Samaritans. They tended to think about them as half-breeds, as dogs, those who worshiped on a different mountain. And yet, in this same exact region, Jesus meets a woman at a well, Jacob's well. He meets her on common ground. Jews and Samaritans both claimed Jacob as a patriarch. He meets her on common ground, a woman in the middle of the day who's an adulteress. A woman in the middle of the day who's an adulteress, who's exiled and an outcast in her own society. And Jesus speaks the truth to her. He puts all her business on front street. And then he invites her to become part of his family. Samaria, Samaritans, and in close proximity with Jesus, a part of the family of God. I wonder if you remember Jesus telling the parable that involved a bunch of religious church folks walking by a man who had been happened upon by thieves and robbers. And at the end of the day, it was not the Jewish priest, it was not the scribe, it was not the rabbi who was merciful to that man, it was whom? The Samaritan who picked him up and put him on his horse and took him to an inn and paid for all of his care. And it was the Samaritan that Jesus sets up as a hero, a Samaritan, a non-Jew, outside the covenants of promise, at the center of God's redemptive program, a son in the house of God. And furthermore, now we get this man who returns to Jesus, verse 16, and Luke adds this on purpose. Now he was a Samaritan. That is intentional. Why? Because ethnicity matters. It matters in the Bible because we need to see how and why God sees all ethnicities, nations, tribes, and tongues that fall under his royal rule and supreme reign that he brings into his family by the person and work of Christ. And ethnicity matters today in our world. And it matters not as a demarcation of why and how we're different, but it matters in an Ephesians 3 kind of way that we see the manifold wisdom of God, that the only way that these people from different places and spaces and tax brackets and geographical areas could worship the same Lord is only by the power of God. That's why we don't need to be colorblind. We need to be color commending because if we erase the beauty of God in ethnicity, friends, then we erase part of his glory. The manifold wisdom of God is such that he wants us to see our differences, to be unified despite our differences so that we can't take credit. Because baby, we done done plenty to mess it all up. We're actively trying to mess it up. 
we're actively trying to find reasons why we shouldn't be in the same places together. Call it CRT, call it racism, call it being in a different neighborhood or zip code. We will invent ways to prevent us from loving one another and being together to lift up the beauty of God. We get in our own way, which is exactly why God says, and I think Luke adds, he was a Samaritan because when you see that, you're invited to watch the power of God. Not talking about something doesn't fix it. But acknowledging the power to fix it that lies outside of us should lead us to humility, trust, and dependence that only sees our neighbor as an object of love and not scorn. This man is a Samaritan. His ethnicity matters. Because if you're a Jew reading this, you read Samaritan and your first thought is, well, he's done. He's outside the covenants of promise. There's no way, there's no way that Jesus is going to make him, this dog, a part of his family. And yet, watch what Jesus does. Jesus then asks. He doesn't say, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't tell this man, You win a prize, come on down. He says, we're not 10 cleansed. And then shortly following that, he says, where are the nine? This is a doubly cursed man. Cursed because of his ethnicity and outside the the promises of God in the law. Cursed because he's leprous and unclean. And this Samaritan gets healed. And watch this. When he first cries out to Jesus, he cries out to Jesus from what? From a distance. Now watch where Jesus is here. He returns. He fell on his feet. Where? At Jesus' feet. Faith closes the distance. This faith that obeys, this faith that trusts, this faith that believes despite his ethnic pedigree fosters intimacy between him and Jesus. Now, do you think that he's going to see the priest only because he's pure of heart and his faith is so real and it's so pure? No, he's probably wanna go see a priest because he's tired of living in this leprosy colony because he wants what he wants, right? We're all selfish creatures. And yet Jesus takes a disordered heart. He's merciful on him anyway, and then invites him to his feet. Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher, being touched by a former leper and a Samaritan, blows all of their theology out of the water. And yet our attention is drawn to the nine who did not return. Where are the nine? Briefly, I've got a couple minutes. I think I want to I apply this to um, what I see here, but also what I see happens in my own heart and in our church. Where are the nine? What happened to those other nine folks? I, I think it may have had something to do with there being uh, the difference in their interaction with Jesus as being transactional and relational. There's a transactional transaction. And then there's a relational transaction. 
It appears in my own human limited understanding that nine former lepers treat their relationship with Jesus as a transaction. Jesus, here's my leprosy. I bring you my leprosy. Don't you want it? I'm bringing you my brokenness and my weakness and my sickness. Don't you want it? Oh, you heal me? Okay, cool. Thanks, Jesus. And not even thanks. Okay, cool. I'm out. I'm going back to where I came from. Nice doing business with you. This is a good deal. I bring you all of my stuff and I walk away with the blessing because I see my interaction with you as transactional and not relational. This interaction foreshadows the great exchange that comes at the cross when we come to the feet of Jesus at the cross as spiritual lepers, unclean, broken, outside the covenants of promise, riddled with sin. And at the resurrection, when Christ raises, so too are we. From our lowliest state, and we're granted the gifts that are not equal in value to what we bring. We bring all of our brokenness. Jesus brings all of his blessing. Those two things are not equal. We bring all of our sin and he brings all of his righteousness. We bring all of our jacked up, toe up from the, toe up from the flow up brokenness and Jesus brings all of his beauty and all of his grace and all of his mercy and we exchange those things on the cross so that we become beautiful, we become whole, we become healed, we become righteous and what does Jesus get? He gets the brokenness and he does so with a smile on his face because the reality is, what do you and I have to offer a king? Y'all know that song at Christmas time, Little Drummer Boy? Come, they told me, well, pum, 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 pum. Y'all know that song? I love the line in that song that says, uh, no gift I have to bring the king, no gift I have that's fit for a king, pum, 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 pum. And I, like, I look at that little boy with his little drum playing it for little baby Jesus, right? And I'm thinking, that's me. I got nothing to bring a king. And yet the king brings all of himself and offers himself willingly. I have nothing. That's what Whitney Houston said. I have nothing. I ain't got nothing. And yet Jesus brings all of himself to offer it to us. This is grace. It is the kindness of God on our behalf. And it doesn't make sense. We bring him our messy, sinful, apathetic lives. He gives us more of himself. Friends, you ain't got to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You ain't got to have it all right. You ain't got to have all the right answers. You ain't got to have the right heart motivation. You ain't got to be seeking Jesus for the right reasons. But I tell you what, you seek him and he will find you. You ain't got to have all your, your, your I's dotted and your T's crossed and you, you ain't got to know all of the theology and you ain't got to have all of the experience. And I just need you to know that when Jesus says, obey, have faith, and you follow in obedience, regardless of your motivation, God will find you. Look what grace has done. It closes the distance. Fourth and finally, grace produces gratitude. Grace produces gratitude. Ungrateful people are entitled people. Are y'all all right? Ungrateful people are entitled people and not entitlement in the sense that my generation is so often attributed with. Entitlement is the belief that one is inherently deserving of special privileges or services. 
I'm going to say that again. Entitlement is the belief that one is inherently deserving of special privileges or services. There are some who've grown up in our area who believe that because of how they've been raised, that they're entitled to special privileges and services of Jesus. Jesus, look at all the things that I've done for you and look at all the things that I've been for you. You have to act on my behalf in this way. Jesus, look at all the ways in which I've served you. You have to do these things for me. Salvation in that sense becomes a transaction and not relational. I think when it comes to gratitude, what we see in this leper is we see that he's been saved and, verse 19, Jesus' command to rise and go your way, and then notice what has made him well, his faith, his belief, his trust in obedience, and his hope of a life apart from this disease. Gratitude is a mark of the redeemed life. And friends, I am grateful that Jesus saw me as a doubly unclean man, a Gentile and a sinner. And I'm grateful that Jesus came to us doubly unclean people and healed us. And I'm grateful that even when my motivations are improper, his grace covers my selfishness. And I'm grateful that ultimately blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never hold against him. So here's the invitation as I finish my time. Here's the invitation. In what ways have you treated God like an ATM? Our relationship with him being transactional and the invitation not only is to repent, but to receive the mercy and the abundant grace of the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus by faith. It's only been intellectual. Maybe it's only been something that you've gone through the motions of, but maybe this day, this morning, you see faith as, necessary for your relationship with the Lord. I just, want, I just want to give us some space to confess, to repent, and to renew again our relationships with Jesus. So let's take the next 30 to 45 seconds. Let's just spend some time in prayer with the Lord to be obedient to the ways in which the Spirit is leading us. Father in heaven, I do thank you for your word, that it never returns unto you void. And I thank you for all the things that you're doing in the secret places and the recesses of our own hearts, the ways in which you're changing and transforming us from the inside out. I thank you that your word is clear, it's perspicuous, and it leads us to faith and obedience and trust. The Spirit of God, would you help us to be obedient when we don't feel like it? Would you help us? to trust you when it's hard to see. And Lord, ultimately, would we be like this leper who returns to your feet in gratitude? Would our faith close the distance and would your grace 
lead us deeper into relationship with you. And Lord, as we here in a moment lift our voices to sing, you promise to inhabit the praises of your people, so come dwell among us as we lift our voices. Lord, we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.